Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. What about that big, beautiful barn? First Shirley and then Sidney Graham have explored it and found it to be a charming, peaceful place. Shirley would really like her brother George and sister Carol to see the place before she makes any firm decisions about whether to move their little family there to live. Can such an opportunity be arranged? Isn't it wonderful that there are such kind and open-hearted people in the world, like the Grahams? It almost seems like there is some good providence working behind the scenes on behalf of the little Hollister family. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. The Enchanted Barn by Grace Livingston Hill Chapter 4 The afternoon before, when Mr. Sidney Graham had returned to his office, from seeing Shirley to the elevator. He stood several minutes looking thoughtfully at the chair where she had sat, while he carefully drew on his gloves. There had been something interesting and appealing in the spirited face of the girl, with her delicate features and wistful eyes. He could not seem to get away from it. It had left an impression of character, and a struggle with forces of which, in his sheltered life, he had only a vague conception. It had left him with the feeling that she was stronger in some ways than himself, and he did not exactly like the sensation of it. He had always aimed to be a strong character himself, and for a young man who had inherited $250,000 on coming of age, and double that amount two years later, with the prospect of another goodly sum when his paternal grandfather's estate was divided, he had done very well indeed. He had stuck to business ever since leaving college, where he had been by no means a non-entity, either in studies or in athletics. And he had not been spoiled by the adulation that a young man of his good looks and wealth and position always receives in society. He had taken on society as a sort of duty but had never given it an undue proportion of his time and thoughts. Notably, he was a young man of fine balance and strong self-control, not given to impulsive or erratic likes and dislikes, and he could not understand why a shabby little person, with a lock of gold over one crimson cheek and tired, discouraged lights in her, had made so strong an impression upon him. It had been his intention just before Shirley's arrival to leave the office at once and perhaps drop in on Miss Harriet Hale. If the hour seemed propitious, he would take her for a spin in his new racing car that even now waited in the street below. But somehow, suddenly his plan did not attract him deeply. He felt the need of being by himself. After a turn or two up and down his luxurious office, he took the elevator down to the street floor dismissed his chauffeur, 
and whirled off in his car, taking the opposite direction from that which would have taken him to the Hale residence. Harriet Hale was a very pretty girl, with a brilliant mind and a royal fortune. She could entertain him and stimulate him tremendously, and sometimes he almost thought the attraction was strong enough to last him through life. But Harriet Hale would not be able to appreciate his present mood, nor explain to him why the presence in his office for fifteen minutes of a nervy little stenographer who was willing to live in a barn should have made him so vaguely dissatisfied with himself. If he were to try to tell her about it, he felt sure he would meet with taunting laughs and brilliant sarcasm. She would never understand. He took little notice of where he was going, threading his way skillfully through the congested portion of the city and out into the comparatively empty highways, until at last he found himself in the suburbs. The name of the street as he slowed up at a grade crossing gave him an idea. Why shouldn't he take a run out and hunt up that barn for himself? What had she said about it? Where was it? He consulted the memorandum he had written down for his father's edification. Glenside Road, near Alistair Avenue. He further searched his memory. Big stone barn, wide approach like a grand staircase, tall tree overhanging. Brook. This surely ought to be enough to help him identify it. There surely were not a flock of stone barns in that neighborhood that would answer that description. He turned into Glenside Road with satisfaction, and set a sharp watch for the names of the cross avenues with a view to finding Alistair Avenue. And once he stopped, and asked a man in an empty milk wagon whether he knew where Alistair Avenue was, and was informed that it was on a piece, about five miles. There was something interesting in hunting up his own strange barn, and he began to look about him and try to see things with the eyes of the girl who had just called upon him. Most of the fields were green with spring, and there was an air of things doing over them, as if growing were a business that one could watch, like house-cleaning and paper-hanging and painting. Graham had never noticed before that the great bare spring out of doors seemed to have a character all its own, and actually to have an attraction. A little later, when the trees were out, and all the orchards in bloom, and the wild flowers blowing in the breeze, he could rave over spring. But he had never seen the charm of its beginnings before. He wondered curiously over the fact of his keen appreciation now. The sky was all opalescent with lovely pastel colors along the horizon, and a few tall, lank trees had put on a soft gauze of green over their foreheads, like frizzes, discernible only to a close observer. The air was getting chilly with approaching night, and the bees were no longer proclaiming, with their hum, the way to the skunk cabbages. But a delicate perfume was in the air, and though perhaps Graham had never even heard of skunk cabbages, he drew in long breaths of sweetness and let out his car over the smooth road with a keen delight. Behind a copse of fine old willows, aged tall and hoary with weather, their extremities just hinting of green as they stood knee-deep in the brook on its way to a larger stream, 
He first caught sight of the old barn. He knew it at once by something indefinable. Its substantial stone spaciousness, its mossy roof, its arching tree, and the brook that backed away from the waiting willows up the hillside under the rail fence and ran around its side. All were unmistakable. He could see it just as the girl had seen it, and something in him responded to her longing to live there and make it into a home. Perhaps he was a dreamer, even as she, although he passed in the world of business for a practical young man. But anyhow, he slowed his car down and looked at the place intently as he passed by. He was convinced that this was the place. He did not need to go on and find Alistair Avenue, though he did, and then turned back again, stopping by the roadside. He got out of the car, looking all the time at the barn, and seeing it in the light of the girl's eyes. As he walked up the grassy slope to the front doors, he had some conception of what it must be to live so that this would seem grand as a home and he showed he was not spoiled by his life in the lap of luxury, for he was able to get a glimpse of the grandeur of the spot and the dignity of the building, with its long simple lines and rough old stones. The sun was just going down as he stood there looking up. It touched the stones and turned them into jeweled settings, glorifying the old structure into a palace. The evening was sweet with the voices of birds not far away, one above the rest, clear and occasional, high in the elm tree over the barn, a wood thrush spilling its silver notes down to the brook that echoed them back in a lilt. The young man took off his hat and stood in the evening air, listening and looking. He could see the poetry of it, and somehow... He could see the girl's face as if she stood there beside him, her wonderful eyes lighted as they had been when she told him how beautiful it was there. She was right. It was beautiful, and it was a lovely soul that could see it and feel what a home this would make, in spite of its being nothing but a barn. Some dim memory, some faint remembrance of a stable long ago and the glory of it, hovered on the horizon of his mind. But his education had not been along religious lines, and he did not put the thing into a definite thought. It was just a kind of sensing of a great fact of the universe, which he perhaps might have understood in a former existence. Then he turned to the building itself. He was practical, after all, even if he was a dreamer. He tried the big padlock. How did they get into this thing? How had the girl got in? Should he be obliged to break into his own barn? He walked down the slope around to the back and found the entrance close to the ladder. But the place was quite dark within the great stone walls, and he peered into the gloomy basement with disgust at the dirt and muck. Only here and there, where a crack looked toward the setting sun, a bright needle of light sent a shaft through to let one see the inky shadows. He was half turning back, but reflected that the girl had said she went up a ladder to the middle floor. If she had gone, surely he could. 
Again, that sense that she was stronger than he rebuked him. He got out his pocket flashlight and stepped within the gloom determinedly. Holding the flashlight above his head, he surveyed his property disapprovingly. Then, with the light in his hand, he climbed in a gingerly way up the dusty rounds to the middle floor. As he stood alone in the dusky shadows of the big barn, with the blackness of the hayloft overhead, the darkness pierced only by the keen blade of the flashlight and a few feebler darts from the sinking sun, the poetry suddenly left the old barn, and a shudder ran through him. To think of trying to live here! How horrible! Yet still that same feeling that the girl had more nerve than he had forced him to walk the length and breadth of the floor, peering carefully into the dark corners and acquainting himself fully with the big, bare place, and also to climb part way up the ladder to the loft and send his flashlight searching through its dusty, hay-strewn recesses. With a feeling utterly at variance with the place, he turned away in disgust and made his way down the ladders again, out into the sunset. In that short time, the evening had arrived. The sky had flung out banners and pennants, penciled by a fringe of fine saplings, like slender brown threads against the sky. The earth was sinking into dusk, and off by the brook, the frogs were tinkling like tiny answering silver rattles. The smell of earth and growing stole upon his senses, and even as he gazed about him, a single star burned into being in the clear ether above him. The birds were still now, and the frogs with the brook for accompaniment held the stage. Once more the charm of the place stole over him, and he stood with hat removed, and wondered no longer that the girl was willing to live here. A conviction grew within him that somehow he must make it possible for her to do so, that things would not be right, and as they ought to be, unless he did. In fact, he had a curiosity to have her do it and see whether it could be done. He went slowly down to his car at last, with lingering backward looks. The beauty of the situation was undoubted, and called for admiration. It was too bad that only a barn should occupy it. He would like to see a fine house reared upon it. But somehow in his heart, he was glad that it was not a fine house standing there against the evening sky, and that it was possible for him to let the girl try her experiment of living there. Was it possible? Could there be any mistake? Could it be that he had not found the right barn after all? He must make sure, of course. But still he turned his car toward home, feeling reasonably sure that he had found the right spot. And as he drove swiftly back along the way, he was thinking, and all his thoughts were woven with the softness of the spring evening and permeated with its sounds. He seemed to be in touch with nature as he had never been before. At dinner that night, he asked his father, Did Grandfather Graham ever live out on the old Glenside Road, father? A pleasant twinkle came in the elder Graham's eyes. Sure, he said, lived there myself when I was five years old. 
before the old man got to speculating and made his pile, and we got too grand to stay in a farmhouse. I can remember rolling down a hill under a great big tree, and your Uncle Billy pushing me into the brook that ran at the foot. We boys used to wade in that brook and build dams and catch little minnows and sailboats. It was great sport. I used to go back holidays now and then, after I got old enough to go away to school. We were living in town then, but I used to like to go out and stay at the farmhouse. It was rented to a queer old fellow, but his wife was a good sort, and made the bulliest apple turnovers for us boys, and donuts. The old farmhouse burned down a year or so ago, but the barn is still standing. I can remember how proud your grandfather was of that barn. It was finer than any barn around, and bigger. We boys used to go up in the loft and tumble in the hay. And once when I was a little kid, I got lost in the hay, and Billy had to dig me out. I can remember how scared I was when I thought I might have to stay there forever and have nothing to eat. <laughs> Say, father, said the son, leaning forward eagerly, I've a notion I'd like to have that old place in my share. Do you think it could be arranged? The boys won't care, I'm sure. They're always more for the town than the country. Why, yes, I guess that could be fixed up. You just see Mr. Dalrymple about it. He'll fix it up. Billy's boy got that place up river, you know. Just see the lawyer and he'll fix it up. No reason in the world why you shouldn't have the old place if you care for it. Not much in it for money, though, I guess. They tell me property's way down out in that direction now. The talk passed to other matters, and Sidney Graham said nothing about his collar of the afternoon, nor of the trip he had taken out to see the old barn. Instead, he took his father's advice and saw the family lawyer, Mr. Dalrymple, the first thing in the morning. It was all arranged in a few minutes. Mr. Dalrymple called up the other heirs and the children's guardian. An office boy hurried out with some papers and came back with the signatures of heirs and guardians, who happened all to be within reach. And presently, the control of the old farm was formally put into the hands of Mr. Sidney Graham, he having signed certain papers agreeing to take this as such and such portion of his right in the whole estate. It had been a simple matter, and yet, when, at about half-past eleven o'clock, Mr. Dalrymple's stenographer laid a folded paper quietly on Sidney Graham's desk and silently left the room. He reached out and touched it with more satisfaction than he had felt in any acquisition in a long time, not accepting his last racing car. It was not the value the paper represented, however that pleased him, but the fact that he would now be able to do as he pleased concerning the prospective tenant for the place, and follow out a curious and interesting experiment. He wanted to study this girl, and see whether she really had the nerve to go and live in a barn. A girl with a face like that? To live in a barn? He wanted to see what manner of girl she was, and to have the right to watch her for a little space. It is true that the morning light might present her in a very different aspect from that in which she had appeared the evening before, 
and he mentally reserved the right to turn her down completely if she showed the least sign of not being all that he had thought her. At the same time, he intended to be entirely sure he would not turn her away without a thorough investigation. Graham had been greatly interested in the study of social science when in college, and human nature interested him at all times. He could not but admit to himself that this girl had taken a most unusual hold upon his thoughts. Chapter 5 As the morning passed on and it drew near to the noon hour, Sidney Graham found himself almost excited over the prospect of the girl's coming. Such foolish fancies as a fear lest she might have given up the idea and would not come at all presented themselves to his distraught brain, which refused to go on its well-ordered way, but kept reverting to the expected caller and what he should say to her. When at last she was announced, he drew back his chair from the desk and prepared to meet her with a strange tremor in his whole bearing. It annoyed him and brought almost a frown of sternness to his fine features. It seemed not quite in keeping with his dignity, as a junior member of his father's firm, that he should be so childish over a simple matter like this, and he began to doubt whether, after all, he might not be doing a most unwise and irregular thing in having anything at all to do with this girl's preposterous proposition. Then Shirley entered the office, looked eagerly into his eyes, and he straightway forgot all his reasoning. He met her with a smile that seemed to reassure her, for she drew in her breath half-relieved and smiled shyly back. She was wearing a little old crepe dress that she had dyed a real apple-blossom pink in the washbowl with a bit of pink crepe paper and a kettle of boiling water. The color showed neatly over the shabby dark blue coat and seemed to reflect apple-blossom tints in her pale cheeks. There was something sunlike in the tint of her eyes that gave the young man a sense of spring fitness as he looked at her contentedly. He was conscious of gladness that she looked as good to him in the broad day as in the dusk of evening. There was still that spirited lift of her chin, that firm set of the sweet lips, that gave a conviction of strength and nerve. He reflected that he had seldom seen it in the girls of his acquaintance. Was it possible that poverty and privation and big responsibility made it? Or was it just innate? You, you have found out? She asked breathlessly as she sat down on the edge of the chair, her whole body tense with eagerness. Sure, it's all right, he said smilingly. You can rent it if you wish. And, and the price? It was evident the strain was intense. Why, the price will be all right, I'm sure. It really isn't worth what you mentioned at all. It's only a barn, you know. We couldn't think of taking more than ten dollars a month. If we took that. I must look it over again, but it won't be more than ten dollars, and it may be less. Young Graham wore his most businesslike tone to say this, and his eyes were on the paper knife wherewith he was mutilating his nice clean blotter pad on the desk. Oh, breathed Shirley, the color almost leaving her face entirely with the relief of his words. Oh, really? 
And you haven't lost your nerve about living way out there in the country in a great empty barn? He asked quickly, to cover her embarrassment, and his own too, perhaps. Oh, no, said Shirley, with a smile that showed a dimple in one cheek, and the star sparks in her eyes. Oh, no, it is a lovely barn, and it won't be empty when we all get into it. How many of you are there? he asked, interested. Already the conversation was taking on a slightly personal tinge, but neither of them was at all aware of it. Two brothers and two sisters and mother, said the girl shyly. She was so full of delight over finding that she could rent the barn that she hardly knew what she was answering. She was unconscious of the fact that she had, in a way, taken this strange young man into her confidence by her shy, sweet tone and manner. Your mother approves of your plan, he asked. She doesn't object to the country. Oh, I haven't told her yet, said Shirley. I don't know that I shall, for she has been quite sick, and she trusts me entirely. She loves the country, and it will be wonderful to her to get out there. She might not like the idea of a barn beforehand, but she has never seen the barn, you know, and besides, it won't look like a barn inside when I get it all fixed up. I must talk it over with George and Carol but I don't think I shall tell her at all till we take her out there and surprise her. I'll tell her I've found a place that I think she'll like, and I'll ask her if I may keep it a surprise. She'll be willing, and she'll be pleased. I know. Her eyes were smiling happily, dreamily. The dreamer was uppermost in her face now, and made it lovely. Then a sudden cloud came, and the strong look returned with courage to meet a storm. But anyhow, she finished after a pause, we have to go there for the summer, for we've nowhere else to go that we can afford, and anywhere out of the city will be good, even if mother doesn't just choose it. I think perhaps it will be easier for her if she doesn't know about it until she's there. It won't seem so much like not going to live in a house. I see, said the young man interestedly. I shouldn't wonder if you're right. And anyhow, I think we can manage between us to make it pretty habitable for her. He was speaking eagerly, and forgetting that he had no right. But a flush came into the sensitive girl's cheek. Oh, I, I wouldn't want to make you any trouble, she said. You've been very kind already, and you've made the rent so reasonable. I'm afraid it isn't fair and right. It is such a lovely barn. Perfectly fair, said Graham glibly. It will do the barn good to be lived in and taken care of again. If he had been called upon to tell just what good it would do the barn to be lived in, he might have floundered out of the situation, perhaps. But he took care not to make that necessary. He went on talking. I will see that everything's in good order, the doors all made right, and the windows, I, that is, if I remember rightly, there were a few little things that needed doing to that barn that ought to be attended to, before you go in. How soon did you want to take possession? I'll try to have it all ready for you. Oh, why, that is very kind, said Shirley. I don't think it needs anything, that is, I didn't notice anything, but perhaps you know best. Why, we have to leave our house the last of this month. Do you suppose we could have the rent begin a few days before that, so we could get things moved gradually? I haven't much time, only at night, you know. We'll date the lease the first of next month, said the young man quickly. 
and then you can put your things in any time you like from now on. I'll see that the locks are made safe, and there ought to be a partition put in. Just a simple partition, you know, at one end of the upstairs room, where you could lock things up. Then you could take them there when you like. I'll attend to that partition at once. The barn needs it. This is as good a time as any to put it in. You wouldn't object to a partition. That wouldn't upset any of your plans. He spoke as if it would be a great detriment to the barn not to have a partition. But of course, he wouldn't insist if she disliked it. Oh, why, no, of course not, said Shirley, bewildered. It would be lovely. Mother could use that for her room. But I wouldn't want you to do anything on our account that you do not have to do anyway. Oh, no, certainly not. But it might as well be done now as any time, and you get the benefit of it, you know. I shouldn't want to rent the place without putting it in good order. And a partition is always needed in a barn, you know, if it's to be a really good barn. It was well that no wise ones were listening to that conversation, else they may have laughed aloud at this point and betrayed the young man's strategy. But Shirley was all untutored in farm lore and knew less about barns and their needs than she did of Sanskrit, so the remark passed without exciting her suspicion. Oh, it's going to be lovely, said Shirley suddenly, like an eager child, and I can't thank you enough for being so kind about it. Not at all, said the young man gracefully, and now you will want to go out and look around again to make your plans. Were you planning to go soon? I should like to have you look the place over again and see if there is anything else that should be done. Oh, why, said Shirley, I don't think there could be anything else, only I'd like to have a key to that big front door, for we couldn't carry things up the ladder very well. I was thinking I'd go out this afternoon, perhaps, if I could get George a leave of absence for a little while. There's been a death in our firm, and the office is working only half-time today, and I'm off again. I thought I'd like to have George see if it's possible. He's very wise in his judgments, and Mother trusts him a lot next to me. But I don't know whether they'll let him off on such short notice. Where does he work? Farwell and Story's department store. They're pretty particular. But George is allowed a day off every three months, if he takes it out of his vacation. So I thought I'd try. Here, let me fix that. Harry Farwell's a friend of mine. He caught up the telephone. Oh, you're very kind, murmured Shirley, quite overcome at the blessings that were falling at her feet. Graham already had the number, and was calling from Mr. Farwell, Jr. That you, Hal? Oh, good morning. Have a good time last night? Sorry I couldn't have been there, but I had three other engagements and couldn't get around. Say, I want to ask a favor of you. You have a boy there in the store I want to borrow for the afternoon if you don't mind. His name is George Hollister. Could you look him up and send him over to my office pretty soon? It'll be a personal favor to me if you will let him off and not dock his pay. Thank you. I was sure you would. Return the favor sometime myself if opportunity comes my way. Yes, I'll hold the phone till you hunt him up. Thank you. Graham looked up from the phone into the astonished, grateful girl's eyes and caught her look of deep admiration which quite confused Shirley for a moment, and put her in a terrible way, trying to thank him again. Oh, that's all right. Farwell and I went to prep school together. 
It's nothing for him to arrange matters. He says it'll be all right. Now, what are your plans? I wonder if I can help in any way. How are you planning to go out? Oh, by the trolley, of course, said Shirley. How strange it must be to have other ways of traveling at one's command. I did think, she added, half thinking aloud, that perhaps I would stop at the schoolhouse and get my sister. I don't know, but it would be better to get her judgment about things. She is rather a wise little girl. She looked up suddenly, and seeing the young man's eyes upon her, grew ashamed that she had brought her private affairs to his notice. Yet, it had seemed necessary to say something to fill in this embarrassing pause. But Sidney Graham did not let her continue to be embarrassed. He entered into her plans just as if they concerned himself also. Why, I think that would be a very good plan, he said. It will be a great deal better to have a real family council before you decide about moving. Now I've thought of something. Why couldn't you all go out in the car with me and my kid sister? I've been promising to take her a spin in the country, and my chauffeur is to drive her down this afternoon for me. It's almost time for her to be here now. Your brother will be here by the time she comes. Why couldn't we just go around by the schoolhouse and pick up your sister and all go out together? I want to go out myself, you know, and look things over. And it seems to me that would save time all around. Then, if there should be anything you want done, you know... Oh, there's nothing I want done, gasped Shirley. You've been most kind, and I couldn't think of asking for anything at the price we shall be paying and we mustn't impose on you. We can go out in the trolley perfectly well and not trouble you. Indeed, it's no trouble whatever when I'm going anyway. Then he returned to the telephone. Hello? He's coming, you say? He's on his way? Good. Thank you very much, Harry. Goodbye. That's all right, he said, turning to her, smiling. Your brother's on his way. And now excuse me just a moment while I phone to my sister. Shirley sat with glowing cheeks and apprehensive mind while the young man called up a girl, whom he addressed as Kid, and told her to hurry the car right down, that he wanted to start very soon, and to bring some extra wraps along for some friends he was going to take with him. He left Shirley no opportunity to express her overwhelming thanks, but gave her some magazines and hurried from the room to attend to some matters of business before he left. Chapter 6 Shirley sat with shining eyes and glowing cheeks, turning over the leaves of the magazines with trembling fingers, but unable to read anything for the joy of what was before her. A real automobile ride, the first she had ever had, and it was to include George and Carol. How wonderful and how kind in him, how thoughtful to take his own sister and hers and so make the trip perfectly conventional and proper. What a nice face he had. What fine eyes. He didn't seem to be in the least like the young society man she knew he must be, from the frequent mention she had noticed of his name in the papers. He was a real gentleman, a real nobleman. There were such. It was nice to know of them now and then even though they did move in a different orbit from the one where she had been set. It gave her a happier feeling about the universe, just to have seen how nice a man could be to a poor little nobody, 
when he didn't have to. For, of course, it couldn't be anything to him to rent that barn at ten dollars a month. That was ridiculous. Could it be that he was thinking her an object of charity? That he felt sorry for her and made the price merely nominal? She couldn't have that. It wasn't right nor honest. And it wasn't respectable. That was the way unprincipled men did when they wanted to humor foolish little dolls of girls. Could it be that he thought of her in any such way? Her cheeks flamed hotly and her eyes flashed. She sat up very straight indeed and began to tremble. How was it that she had not thought of such a thing before? Her mother had warned her to be careful about having anything to do with strange men, except in the most distant, business-like way. And here she had been telling him frankly all the private affairs of the family and letting him make plans for her. How had it happened? What must he think of her? This came of trying to keep a secret from mother. She might have known it was wrong, and yet the case was so desperate, and mother so likely to worry about any new and unconventional suggestion. It had seemed right, but of course it wasn't right for her to fall in that way and allow him to take them all in his car. She must put a stop to it somehow. She must go in the trolley if she went at all. She wasn't sure, but she had better call the whole thing off and tell him they couldn't live in a barn, that she had changed her mind. It would be so dreadful if he had taken her for one of those girls who wanted to attract the attention of a young man. In the midst of her perturbed thoughts, the door opened, and Sidney Graham walked in again. His fine, clean-cut face and clear eyes instantly dispelled her fears again. His bearing was dignified and respectful, and there was something in the very tone of his voice as he spoke to her that restored her confidence in him and in his impression of her. Her half-formed intention of rising and declining to take the ride with him fled, and she sat quietly, looking at the pictures in the magazine with unseeing eyes. "'I hope you'll find something to interest you for a few minutes,' young Graham said pleasantly. It won't be long, but there are one or two matters I promised father I would attend to before I left this afternoon. There's an article in that other magazine under your hand about beautifying country homes, bungalows and the like. It may give you some ideas about the old barn. I shouldn't wonder if a few flowers and vines might do a whole lot. He found the place in the magazine and left her again. And strangely enough, she became absorbed in the article because... Her imagination immediately set to work, thinking how glorious it would be to have a few flowers growing where Doris could go out and water them and pick them. She grew so interested in the remarks about what flowers would grow best in the open and which were easiest to care for that she got out her little pencil and notebook that were in her coat pocket and began to copy some of the lists. Then suddenly the door opened, and Graham returned with George. The boy stopped short on the threshold, startled, a white wave of apprehension passing over his face. He did not speak. The boy habit of silence and self-control in a crisis was upon him. He looked with apprehension from one to the other. Shirley jumped to her feet. Oh, George, I'm so glad you could come. This is Mr. Graham. 
he has been kind enough to offer to take us in his car to see a place we can rent for the summer, and it was through his suggestion that Mr. Farwell let you off for the afternoon. There was a sudden relaxing of the tenseness in the young face, and a sigh of relief in the tone as the boy answered, Ah, oh, gee, that's great. Thanks awfully for the holiday. They don't come my way often. It'll be great to have a ride in a car, too. Some lark, eh, Shirley? The boy warmed the subject with the friendly grasp the young man gave him, and Shirley could see her brother had made a good impression, for young Graham was smiling appreciatively, showing all his even white teeth, just as if he enjoyed the boy's offhand way of talking. I'm going to leave you here for ten minutes more until I talk with the man out here in the office. Then we will go, said young Graham, and hurried away again. Gee, Shirley, said the boy, flinging himself down luxuriously in a big leather chair. Gee, you certainly did give me some start. I thought mother was worse or you'd got arrested or lost your job or something. Finding you here in a strange office, some class to this, isn't there? Look at the thickness of that rug. And he kicked the thick Turkish carpet happily. Say, he must have some coin. Who is this guy anyway? How do you get onto the tip? You don't think he's handing out Vanderbilt residences at fifteen a month, do you? Listen, George, I must talk fast because he may come back any minute. Yesterday I got a half holiday, and instead of going home, I thought I'd go and hunt a house. I took the Glenside trolley, and when we got out past the city, I heard two men talking about a place we were passing. It was a great, big, beautiful stone barn. They told who owned it and said a lot about having it such a splendid spring of water beside it. It was a beautiful place, George, and I couldn't help thinking what a thing it would be for Mother to be out in the country this summer, and what a wonderful house that would make. We couldn't live in a barn, Cheryl, said the boy aghast. Just wait, George, listen. Just you don't say that till you've seen it. It's the biggest barn you ever saw and I guess it hasn't been used for a barn in a long time. I got out of the trolley on the way back and went in. It is just enormous, and we could screen off rooms and live like princes. It has a great big front door, and we could have a hammock under the tree, and there's a brook to fish in and a big third story with hay in it. I guess it's what they call in books a hayloft. It's great! Gee, was all the electrified George could utter. Oh, gee. It's on a little hill with the loveliest tree in front of it, and right on the trolley line. We'd have to start a little earlier in the morning, but I wouldn't mind, would you? Nah, said George, but could we walk that far? No, we'd have to ride, but the rent is so much lower, it would pay our car fare. Gee, said George again. Isn't that great? And is this the guy that owns it? Yes, or at least he and his father do. He's been very kind. He's taking all this trouble to take us out in his car today to make sure if there's anything that needs to be done for our comfort there. He certainly is an unusual man for a landlord. <laughs> he sure is, Shirley. Maybe he has a crush on you the way he looks at you. George, said Shirley severely the red staining her cheeks and her eyes flashing angrily. George, 
That was a dreadful thing for you to say. If you ever even think a thing like that again, I won't have anything to do with him or the place. We'll just stay in the city all summer. I suppose perhaps that would be better anyway. Shirley got up and began to button her coat haughtily, as if she were going out that minute. Ah, gee, Shirley, I was just kidding. Can't you take a joke? This thing must be getting on your nerves. I never saw you so touchy. It certainly is getting on my nerves to have you say a thing like that, George. Shirley's tone was still severe. Ah, cut the grout, Shirley, I tell you, I was just kidding. Of course he's a good guy. He probably thinks you're cross-eyed, knock-kneed. George! Shirley started for the door, but the irrepressible George saw that it was time to stop, and he put out an arm with muscles that were like iron from many wrestlings and ball games with his fellow laborers at the store. Now, Shirley, cut the comedy. That guy'll be coming back next, and you don't want to have him ask what's the matter, do you? He certainly is some fine guy. I wouldn't like to embarrass him, would you? He's a peach of a looker. Say, Shirley, what do you figure mother's going to say about this? Shirley turned, half mollified. That's just what I want to ask you, George. I don't want to tell mother until it's all fixed up, and we can show it to her. You know it'll sound a great deal worse to talk about living in a barn than it will to go in and see it all fixed up with rugs and curtains and screens and the piano and a couch and the supper table set and the sun setting outside the open door and a bird singing in the tree. Gee, Shirley, wouldn't that be some class? Say, Shirley, don't let's tell her. Let's just make her say she'll trust the moving to us and surprise her. Can you kid her along and make her willing for that? Why, that was what I was thinking. If you think there's no danger, she'll be disappointed and sorry, and think we ought to have done something else. What else could we do? Say, Shirley, it would be great to sleep in the hayloft. We could just tell her that we were coming out in the country for the summer to camp in a nice place, where it was safe and comfortable. And then we would have plenty of time to look around for the right kind of house for next winter. That's right, Shirley, you give her that. She'll fall for it, sure thing. She'll like the country, at least, if it's like what you say it is. Well, you wait till you see it. Have you told Carol? asked George, suddenly sobering. Carol was his twin sister, inseparable chum, and companion when he was at home. No, said Shirley, I haven't had a chance. But Mr. Graham suggested we drive by the school and get her. Then she can see how she likes it, too. And if Carol thinks so, we'll get Mother not to ask any questions, but just trust to us. Gee, that guy's great. He's got a head on him. Some lark, what? Yes, he's been very kind, said Shirley. At first I told him I couldn't let him take so much trouble for us, but he said he was going to take his sister out for a ride. A girl? Ah, oh, gee, I'm going to beat it. George stopped in his eager walk back and forth across the office and seized his old faded cap. George, stop. You mustn't be impolite. Besides, I think she's only a very little girl, probably like Doris. He called her his kid sister. Huh. You can't tell. 
I ain't going to run any risks. I better beat it. But George's further intentions were suddenly brought to a finish by the entrance of Mr. Sidney Graham. We are all ready at last, he said with a smile. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting so long, but there was something wrong with one of my tires, and the chauffeur had to run around to the garage. Come on, George, he said to the boy, who hung shyly behind now, wary of any lurking female who might be haunting the path. Guess you'll have to sit in the front seat with me and help me drive. The chauffeur has had to go back and drive for mother. She has to go to some tea or other. George suddenly forgot the possible girl and followed his new hero to the elevator with a swelling soul. What would the other fellows at the store think of him? A whole half holiday, an automobile ride, and a chance to sit in the front and learn to drive. But all he said was, Ah, gee, yes, sure thing. The strange girl suddenly loomed on his consciousness again as they emerged from the elevator and came out on the street. She was sitting in the great back seat alone, arrayed in a blue velvet coat, the color of her eyes, and George felt at once all hands and feet. She was a slender wisp of a thing about Carol's age, with a lily complexion and a wealth of gold hair caught in a blue veil. She smiled very prettily when her brother introduced her as Elizabeth. There was nothing snobbish or disagreeable about her, but that blue velvet coat suddenly made George conscious of his own common attire and gave Shirley a pang of dismay at her own shabby little suit. However, Sidney Graham soon covered all differences in the attire of his guests by insisting that they should don the two long blanket coats that he handed them. And somehow, when George was seated in the big leather front seat, with that great handsome coat around his shoulders, he did not so much mind the blue velvet girl behind him, and mentally resolved to earn enough to get Carol a coat like it. Only Carol should be pink or red, to go with her black eyes and her pink cheeks. After all, it was surely not George who felt embarrassed over the strange girl, and wished she had not come. She was vexed with herself for it, too. It was foolish to let a child no older than Carol fluster her so. But the thought of a long ride alone on that back seat with the dainty young girl actually frightened her. But Elizabeth was not frightened. She had been brought up in the society atmosphere and was at home with people always, everywhere. She tucked the robes about her guest, helped Shirley button the big, soft, dark blue coat about her, remarking that it got awfully chilly when they were going. And somehow, before Shirley had been able to think of a single word to say in response, the conversation seemed to be moving along easily without her aid. Sid says we're going to pick up your sister from her school. I'm so glad. How old is she? About my age? Won't that be delightful? I'm rather lonesome this spring because all my friends are in school. I've been away at boarding school and got measles. Wasn't that too silly for a great big girl like me? And the doctor said I couldn't study any more this spring on account of my eyes. It's terribly lonesome. I've been home six weeks now and I don't know what to do with myself. What's your sister's name? Carol? Carol Hollister? That's a pretty name. Is she the only sister you have? (gasps) A baby sister! How sweet! What's her name? Oh, 
I think Doris is the cutest name ever. Doris Hollister. Why don't we go and get Doris? Wouldn't she like to ride, too? Oh, oh, it's too bad your mother is ill. But of course she wouldn't want to stay all alone in the house without some of her family. Elizabeth was tactful. She knew at a glance that trained nurses and servants could not be plentiful in a family where the young people wore such plain, old-style garments. She gave no hint of such a thought, however. That's your brother, she went on, nodding toward George. I've got another brother, but he's seventeen and away at college, so I don't see much of him. Sid's very good to me when he has time, and often he takes me to ride. We're awfully jolly chums, Sid and I. Is this the school where your sister goes? She's in high school, then. The third year. My, she must be bright. I've only finished my second. Does she know she's going with us? What fun to be called out of school by a surprise. Oh, I just know I'm going to like her. Shirley sat dumb with amazement and listened to the eager gush of the lively girl. Wondered what shy Carol would say, trying to rouse herself to answer the young questioner in the same spirit in which she asked questions. George came out with Carol in a very short time, Carol struggling into her coat and trying to straighten her hat. While George mumbled in her ears, he helped her clumsily. Some baby doll out there, kid. You better preen your feathers. She's been gassing with Shirley to beat the band. I couldn't hear all they said, but she asked a lot about you. You should worry. Hold up your head and don't flicker an eyelash. You're as good as she is any day, if you don't look all dolled up like a new saloon. But she's some looker. Pretty as a red wagon. Her brother's a peach of a fellow. He's going to let me run the car when we get out of the city limit and say, Shirley says for me to tell you we're going out to look at a barn where we're going to move this summer. And you're not to say a word about its being a barn, see? Get onto that sky-blue pink satin scarf she's got around her head. Ain't she some chicken, though? Hush, George, she'll hear you, murmured Carol in dismay. What do you mean about a barn? How could we live in a barn? Ah, just be quiet and saw wood, kid, and you'll see. Shirley thinks she's got on to something pretty good. Then Carol was introduced to the beautiful blue velvet girl and sat down beside her, wrapped in a soft furry cloak of garnet, to be whirled away into a fairyland of wonder. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to the Enchanted Barn. Please let me know how you like this story and make suggestions for others you'd like to hear. I'll talk to you again soon.